And we all kind of put this, who we want Jesus to be, in this box. And listen, Jesus doesn't fit in your box or mine. So often, Jesus is not what I want him to be. He calls me to greater things. He calls me to more than I want. He calls me to more radical things than I want. He calls me to forgive people I don't want to forgive. He calls me to love people I don't want to love, if I'm going to be honest. And, I mean, this is church, so this should be the place we could do that, right? I hope so. All right, so... If you will, stand with me in the honor of reading of God's Word, John chapter 5. We do this because we are convinced that really this is the most important thing you're going to hear all morning. Uh, far more important than anything I have to say. Really, from this point on, I'm just trying to point back to what this says. So starting in verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I, I, have no, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going... Another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed and took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk. And now the man who had been healed didn't know, did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Then the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was, this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. You may be seated. Let's pray. God Almighty, as we look into your word this morning... Lord, my prayer is that you speak louder than me. My prayer is that we hear clearly from your Holy Spirit what it is you have for us to hear today. Lord, that each of us may leave here more in love with you than we arrived. Lord, I love you and I am so grateful that you love me. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So there are some initial questions I have. I'm a questioner. And so when I read this, there's a couple of things that I asked when I first read this. One was, why didn't Jesus heal more people? Why does he show up where it tells us there's invalids everywhere? There's, there's, there's handicapped people, there's paralyzed people, there's lame people everywhere. And Jesus picks one guy 
And, and listen, this guy doesn't call out to Jesus. This is not one of those stories. We have stories. We have, a, we have another story where Jesus is in a crowd and there's people everywhere. And all of a sudden Jesus goes, who touched me? And his disciples are like, who touched you? There's a mob around you. Everybody touched you. And he's like, no, somebody touched me and I healed them. Which, I mean, that would be a great thing to do accidentally. And so Jesus wants to know. Now, this is not somebody reaching out to Jesus, someone coming after Jesus. We talked a few weeks ago about four men who brought their friend and they lowered him through a roof and, and how that was a huge step of faith. And man, this faith, and he says, because of your faith, uh, you've been healed in, in several places in Scripture. But in this one, this guy doesn't reach out with any faith. Jesus seeks him out. Jesus finds this guy, and Jesus says, do you want to be healed? And he doesn't even answer yes. I mean, this guy has so little faith, he doesn't even go, yeah, that'd be great. He goes, man, I'd love to, but I can't get in the pool. So that's one of the questions I have that I think we'll answer as we keep going. Here's another one. Where is verse 4? Anybody else notice that? Maybe you have a different translation, and I didn't read verse 4, and you're going, Pastor, you skipped something. Anybody notice that it goes from verse 3 to verse 5? That kind of stuff drives me nuts. And so I have to figure out what is going on. And so here's what I figured out. I looked into it. And all right, so here's how they didn't have Xerox machines back then. And so you had scribes. And so what scribes would do is they would take the scriptures and they would handwrite new copies of the scriptures over and over and over, which is why they became an expert on scriptures. Because if you write something that many times, you're going to know it pretty well, right? I mean, for a living, what you did was rewrite the scriptures. At some point, you're going to learn the scriptures. And so the scribes are doing that, but here's what some scribes would do. Some scribes thought, you know, this needs a little commentary. I need to add a little something to this. And they wouldn't write it in the scriptures. They would write it in the margin. See, my Bible, I love it. My Bible has margins. And so I write in the margins. And so I've got these little margins where I can write all my thoughts and questions and stuff like that. I actually heard somebody say one time, you shouldn't write in your Bible, you know, because it's scripture. And the deal is I write in pen, this is type. And so I usually can tell the difference between what I write and what was typed in there. And so the scribes would write in the margins, and then, and then the next scribe that copied that copy would also write it in the margin. And then the next guy would also write it in the margin. And then one guy would go, this is what happened with verse 4. Some guy would see what was in the margin and go, oh, they forgot to put that in here. And they would write it into the scriptures. This is what happened. Now, how do we know that? Well, because I told you so. No, I'm just kidding. Um, how do we know that? All right, so here's what we have. We have old manuscripts and we have newer manuscripts. There's actually, I don't know if you know this, there are more copies, because of that process with the scribes, there are more copies of the Holy Scriptures of the Bible than there is of any other ancient writing. Like, more, like, not, I'm not talking about, like, copies like we have, like this. Like, there's more, like, old, like, on papyrus and stuff like that. More of those copies than there is of any other ancient text at all. Like, there's more of that than there is of Shakespeare, there are more copies. So, so a long time ago, when we started translating Bibles into English, uh, when King James Stuart, great name, um, when, when he kind of was like, hey, translate this, um, they, there was one set of manuscripts that they had, and they used those manuscripts. And then later, archaeologists found more manuscripts that were actually even older than the ones that were used then. And so, here's the question you have to ask yourself. If you've got two sets of manuscripts... One of them is older, one of them is newer, which one is more accurate? Older. The older ones, because it's closer to the original, right? I mean, when you make a copy of 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 a copy, at some point you're going to start to lose things, right? 
And so the older the manuscripts get, the more accurate it is. And so this verse 4 was in the newer manuscripts. But it wasn't in, it was, it was just a scribal margin right in the older ones. That's how we know that verse 4. Now, the other reason we know verse 4 is, you know, questionable, is if you read verse 4, what it says is that basically every once in a while an angel would come and stir up the waters and, and the first person in would get healed. Now, does that sound like something the way that God would actually design it, or does that sound like an urban myth? Or maybe a rural myth, I don't know. That sounds more like something that we would kind of just make up, some sort of legend that we would make up. And so that's what's going on with verse 4. So there's your answer to that. Where is verse 4? In the margins. And so uh, now that explains to you why in verse 7, when when the man answers Jesus, he says, man, I'd love to get get well, but I can't, I'm, I'm lame, hence I can't get to the pool first. You know, the whole reason I can't get to the pool is because I'm not well. The whole reason I need to get in the pool is because I'm not well, and nobody's willing to take me. So, yeah, I mean, I'd love to get well, but I've been sitting here for 38 years, and it hadn't happened. So, sure, that'd be great. So that's where verse 4 is. Another one I want to ask is, why didn't Jesus stick around? Like, Jesus heals this guy and then disappears. So what is that all about? We'll look at that in a minute. And then another one is, how does sin correlate with sickness? Because we see this. We see when Jesus encounters the guy later in the temple, what does he say to him? He goes, see, you're well, that's good. Now, go and sin no more so nothing worse happens to you. So for some reason, there's some correlation with sin with what's going on in this man's life. And so let's, let's do this. Let's look at this. What we're going to do is we're going to break this up into uh, two or three verses at a time. And I just want to see if what we can find in those verses together. And hopefully we'll answer all these questions by the time we get to the end. First, we've got to look at some just general setup context of the first five, uh, well, four verses, but one through five. Uh, so one through five. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem now there, was, now there is in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. All right, so what do we know about what's going on? We know that Jesus has kind of been traveling back and forth. He's made his way back to Jerusalem. He's by some pool, by a gate. Now, you may want to ask what pool and what gate, and I would love to be able to answer that question for you but I can't. Uh, I looked it up. I searched all I could. There's a lot of debate over what pool it is and what gate it is. We do know it was a pool by sheep gate. We do know that when Nehemiah in the Old Testament, Nehemiah is rebuilding the walls around Jerusalem. We do know, and I think it's the 33rd chapter or something like that. In Nehemiah, we know that he rebuilds the sheep gate. So there's a sheep gate in the wall around Jerusalem. So there's a pool here and there's five colonnades around that pool. And this is what we know. Now that's not necessarily super important in any sort of way uh, to us today and what we're looking at, but that's where they're at. And all these people are hanging out around the pool and they're waiting to get into the pool. Like I said, if you read verse 4, they want to be the first one in once the water bubbles. Now, why would it bubble? Because it's probably an intermittent spring, which actually has some minerals in it that can uh, help you medicinally and to some degree. I mean, uh, so, I mean, I know down in Green Cove, there's a pool that's fed by a spring. I don't know that, I mean, I didn't see any invalids hanging out around it. Um, but there was this idea, and so that's where they're at. So that's our context. But um, the, here's the deal. The answer to really all these questions, and I, I say this a lot, and so the answer to all these questions is it's all about Jesus. 
It's all about Jesus. Here, I want to show you why. First off, we see Jesus' knowledge. In, in verses 6 and 7, we see him say, uh, when Jesus saw him lying there, so this guy was been there for 38 years, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he'd already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? So he already knew how long this guy's been there. Knew, he had knowledge of what was going on in this guy's life. The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool. And when the water is stirred up, and while I'm going, another steps down before me. So somebody always beats me there. Jesus is aware of your struggles. What we need to understand is that nobody comes in clean today. Nobody gets to come in here today and have it all together. Nobody. One of the things that has plagued the modern church is this idea of playing pretend that everything is okay. So I, I prefer that we create a culture of transparency and honesty so that we can be a community that legitimately helps each other. Because if I don't know what's going on with you, I can't help you. Now, Uncle Randall, you're a doctor. If I came to your office and just said, I don't feel good, you would have some follow-up questions, wouldn't you? And if in the end of your, all of your follow-up questions, I was like, nah, I'm good. I'm fine. Are you going to be able to help me? No, not at all. And it's the same way as a community. If we all think everybody's okay, here's two things that happens. One, if everybody thinks you're okay, then nobody's trying to take care of you and, and carry that burden with you and walk life with you. And then two, here's the other thing that happens. I see this all the time. People come to saving faith in Christ and they become a Christian and they had this screwed up life and they're like, man, I'm so glad to be a Christian now. And then they come to church and they're like, man, all of you have already got this figured out. I don't fit in here. So listen, I think when we all will admit that we're all screw-ups, then we'll all be able to help each other and realize that we all fit in together. Saying that you won't go to church because of the hypocrites um, doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I mean, the church is full of hypocrites, which is exactly why you would fit in well here. Because you're one of us. And Jesus loves us. Isn't that great? Isn't that great that in the midst of all that, Jesus loves us? Man, that's good. So Jesus knows, he is aware of your struggle. Nobody comes in clean. Psalm 139, 2 through 4 says this. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it. All together. So not only does Jesus know all the things that you've screwed up, he knows all the weird thoughts you've had about screwing up, which is scary. But yet he loves us anyway. Jesus' healing power. So let's talk about Jesus' healing here for a minute. Why, why did he heal this guy? Why does he not heal anybody else? Uh, verses 8 and 9, Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. Um. Why, why would Jesus heal just one guy? Now, we see other times that like, he heals like everybody that comes around. When we talked about the four men who brought uh, this guy to Jesus and lowered him through the roof, the reason they did that is because he was like healing everybody he met. I mean, Jesus was just healing people, drawing this huge crowd. And so there are times in which Jesus just heals like everybody around. And this would be a prime time to do it, right? 
because that's primarily who's around him. But he kind of sneaky, walks in, picks one guy, heals the guy, and then disappears. What that tells me is that Jesus had to have had something bigger than this man's healing on his mind. There had to have been something else driving him, some other reason that he would walk in and heal one guy and leave than just the healing of this man. Because we're not, again, we're not even talking about a man of great faith. We're talking about a man who even didn't even know who healed him. When the priests find him and go, and, which we're going to talk about in a minute, which is crazy, they find a guy that's been lame for 38 years, and their first thought is, why are you carrying your bed on the Sabbath? When they find him, he, and, they, and they said, well, his answer is, because the guy who healed me told me to carry my bed. And when the guy, if the guy that healed me told me to clog river dance all the way over here, I would have clogged river danced. I mean, whatever that guy said to do, I was going to do it. Well, who was it? I don't know. He just healed me. So this wasn't initially or primarily about this man's faith. So why would Jesus heal one random guy? I think because he wanted to make this about his authority and his power. He wanted to do it on the Sabbath. He wanted to stir things up a little bit. He wanted to mess with the Pharisees and their religious system. He wanted to establish himself as the Son of God, and he wanted to kind of mix things up, and he knew how it was all going to play out, and he didn't want to draw a crowd and make it about healing. He wanted to make it about breaking the Sabbath. That's what Jesus intended to make this about, is a conversation with the Jewish leaders about breaking the Sabbath, or at least their view of the Sabbath. And here's some things we can learn out of this, some hard truths. I cannot guarantee you that Jesus will heal you. I can't guarantee you he has the power to. I have no doubt in my mind, I've seen it happen. Jesus, without lifting a finger, has the power and authority to heal you, to heal your loved ones. But I cannot promise you that if you have enough faith, you'll be healed. This man had no faith and was healed. Jesus is going to heal people. And sometimes, sometimes he's not. I remember in college, one of my best friends from growing up had an awful car wreck. And I remember over a hundred people flooding the hospital. I mean, doctors and nurses were getting upset with us because of how many people were there. And every single one of us was praying and begging God to save him. And he didn't. He didn't. He didn't heal him. So what do you do with that? You realize that this is bigger than us. This is bigger than your comfort here on earth. This is bigger than you being able to make it another couple years on this earth. This is bigger than you feeling okay. This is bigger than you getting to have your loved ones. It's even as big as that is in your own life, in your own world. This is bigger than all of that. This thing about Jesus is so much bigger than you that sometimes it is required that you and your loved ones not be healed for the advancement of his name. And so you may go, well, man, that's awfully arrogant and self-focused of Jesus to do that. Only if he is not the Son of God. 
This is the key issue. It's a key issue for us today. It's the key issue for the Jewish leaders that encounter him. They're fine with him healing people. Just don't do it on the Sabbath. They're fine with him doing some other things, but just follow within our rules and do it the way we want you to do it. But when you claim that you're the son of God and that you know better than me, now I'm mad. And we do the same thing. We do the same exact thing. What I love, though, is he's big enough to handle it. I have a friend who just lost a baby. And I was talking to the husband on the phone. And he said, man, I'm mad. And I'm sad. And I'm everything. And he said, I know it's not healthy. And I said, no, stop. Absolutely healthy. You should be upset and sad if that's what you're feeling right now. Because if you read the Psalms, as David, bipolar David, writes the Psalms, like one day he's like, I can't get enough of you. Like, he's, he's, I meditate on your laws. I go to sleep. It's like honey on my lips. And the next day he's like, please, can I get away from you? And the next day he's like, where are you? And yet God says David is a man after God's own heart. Because it's bigger than you, he can handle it. He can handle your doubts, your struggles, your frustrations. It's what you do with them. Don't let them run, make them run from him, but in it run to him. Because see, it's only arrogant and self-focused in a negative way if he's not the son of God. If he's just a prophet, he's just a good guy, he's just a great teacher, if he's just a miracle worker, then yeah, it's a little arrogant and self-focused for it to be all about him. But if he is God, if he is God, then he's perfectly just and right. And it's in our best interest for it to be all about him. Because in him being God, he's aware that the greatest thing we could ever have and experience in our lives is him. That's what got messed up in the beginning. The greatest thing about what Adam and Eve had was that they got to walk with God. That's what got messed up. When everything got messed up, it was that relationship. It was that ability to commune with God that got messed up. And it is that ability that he fights for on the cross and gives us that option of having that relationship with him. It's not about being a better person. It's not about having a better marriage or getting healed although he's Jesus, so he can do all those things. It's about getting Jesus. 1 Peter 2.24 talks about healing. Talking about Jesus, he himself bore our sins and his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. It's by his wounds that we are ultimately healed. We get what? 70, 80, 90, maybe, if we're lucky, 100 years here, compared to an eternity, either with him or without him. Because the whole thing is about a relationship. John MacArthur says that if the Savior, if Jesus Christ waited until there was in the sinner's heart a due appreciation of his person, nobody would ever get saved. 
This is not about you having enough faith to get healed. This is about Jesus just being amazing. Then Jesus challenges the system. And this is what it's really all about. 10 through 13. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, I love this response, it is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you, for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, and there was a crowd in the place. And so here, here's what I love, is imagine. Imagine we have a church member that always sits on the front row in their wheelchair, and they've been an invalid for 38 years, um, and, and man, you know, they're great and, and all, but, you know, for 38 years, and in the middle of my preaching, so I, I'm preaching, and I start preaching, all of a sudden, they, like, stand up and start going, man, what is, like, we, we would stop, wouldn't we? Do you think I would say, sit down, sir? I'm trying to preach here. You are being disrespectful. And you will have time to stand up later. I mean, that's basically what these guys do, isn't it? This guy gets healed. They see a guy that's been healed, and because he's carrying his bed. Now, note you, this is not an Old Testament law about the Sabbath. The Sabbath is an Old Testament law, yes, but this part about the Old Testament. See, what the Jewish leaders would do is, in, in a good intention, they had the law. And in the law, the guy was very clear, don't break the law. So what they did is they kind of built these protections around the law. And so they would start to uh, give these certain descriptions of what you could and could not do on the Sabbath because the law really was just don't do anything on the Sabbath for, for personal gain. And they were like, well, how do we make sure that we don't work? I mean, this is pretty serious. We've got to make sure that we don't work. So you know what you can't do on the Sabbath according to their rules? You cannot look in the mirror. You know why? Because you might see a gray hair and pluck it out. That is an actual law according to these Jewish leaders. And if you pluck that gray hair then that is work. Now, some of you, if you start plugging gray hairs, there's not going to be many left. And that's going, to be a, that's going to be a busy day of work. As a matter of fact, there, it's gotten so crazy now, even to this day, uh, there are some, some very highly Jewish areas in which they have what are called Sabbath elevators. You're not allowed to push a button or flip a switch. And so on the Sabbath, these elevators, and only on the Sabbath, these elevators just kind of automatically go and stop at each floor. And so like, there's, there's all day on the Sabbath, they go up and down, up and down, stopping at every floor. Why? Because if you're Jewish and you want to use the elevator on the Sabbath, well, you can't press any buttons, but you can walk in, and then you can eventually walk out when it gets to your floor. That way you don't press any buttons, because that would be dishonoring to God for you to press a button. And so it's this idea of what all they've put around the Sabbath that Jesus is attacking here. We, we have a, a long story about it. I'm not going to read you all of it, just the end. Matthew 12, 6 through 8. Again, he gets challenged about the Sabbath. Um, and, and Jesus says, talks about how the priest had to eat out of the temple and some things like that. And he says, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, uh, if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, which is out of the Psalms, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Other places in the Scripture it says that Sabbath was created for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the key is, again, that 
these guys wanted the Messiah to fit into their box. And he's not going to fit in your box. And he's not going to fit into my box. And so what does Jesus do? He stirs things up. Now, I would tell a personal story about me stirring things up, but those don't exist. Um, no, my entire family's here. They know, they could tell you a hundred stories of me challenging authority. I have a great, I do have a fun story for you about challenging authority. Um, so in New Orleans, we have some friends that have these neighbors that he had put up this nice fence and the homeowners association came real hard on him against this fence for some reason. And it became this massive battle between him and the homeowners association about this fence. And he literally ended up having to take this very expensive, very nice, not an eyesore. We're not talking like an ugly fence, a good looking fence, but he wasn't allowed to have it. So he had to take this fence down. And he was so mad at the homeowners association to stir things up. He started to look through all the rules for the homeowners association and saw that you could have lawn decorations. So this man, just to spite the homeowners association, because they called his fence an eyesore, he built or had a sculptor built, or I don't know who, but these things are huge. Three 14-foot pink flamingos and a 12-foot rooster in his front yard. Now, that, that's one way that you could challenge the system and challenge authority. Jesus is intentionally, intentionally challenging authority here. He is... The whole reason he healed this guy was for the setup of this moment because, because Jesus could have just said, get up and walk, couldn't he? I mean, he's Jesus. He could do whatever he wants. But he could have just told the guy, get up and walk. But he, what is it? Jesus specifically says, pick up your mat, get up and walk. Jesus specifically tells them to pick up his mat. And this is what they're mad about. He's carrying his mat on the Sabbath. And so as Jesus challenges the system, we see that Jesus, Jesus doesn't fit nicely into what we want him to fit into, nor does he with the Jewish leaders. So who is he really then? Well, Jesus is Emmanuel. What is Emmanuel? Emmanuel, it's out of Old Testament prophecy about the Messiah, and it means that God is with us, that God has decided to dwell among us. Now listen, this is what's so fascinating to me about Jesus. In every other religious system, there is a call on you to either work towards God, somehow attain favor from that deity or system. Every other system This is the only one where he comes down to us on our level. The incarnation of Christ, the birth of Jesus, is one of the most unique religious things ever. Now, I've heard all the arguments against that. And I've heard the birth of Jesus compared to Greek myths. I've heard the birth of Jesus compared to old stories from other cultures. What's funny is where I've heard most of those is on Facebook in neat-looking infographics. And if you'll actually read those original stories, if you'll actually go to those Greek myths and the stories from those other cultures, there's so little in common. It's not the same, I can assure you. 
Now, I could spend five, six hours reading those to you and tell you that, but I'm not just saying just trust me. I'm saying if you really want to know, if that's something that trips you up, if that's something that makes you go, is all of this real? My challenge to you would be go read the original sources. Please never, ever, ever let an infographic on Facebook declare your faith. Please go further than that. Please go much deeper than, than, than some nicely packaged, simplistic argument. If you read the originals, you'll see that there's something so fascinatingly unique about Christ that it sets him completely apart. If you look at great scholars who have studied this, many of them have come to the faith to their own chagrin. My favorite of that is C.S. Lewis. Many of you may not know that, but C.S. Lewis was not a believer. He was an atheist. He was a professor, and as he was studying it, the uniqueness of Christ perplexed him. And he just couldn't get away from how different Christ was. He one time was walking down the hallway, and after he did become a believer, and a couple other professors who really were upset with him, had written every religious system ever on a chalkboard. And they brought him into the room, and they said, C.S. Lewis, what's the difference between your Jesus and all of these? He said, it's easy. Grace. Jesus is the only one that offers grace. Why? Because our God and no real God can be attained by us on our own effort. If you can attain to your, to your God on your own effort, is he really worthy of being called a God? Our God is so big, so amazing, that there's literally no way on your own you could get to him. It requires his incarnation. It requires him being Emmanuel. It requires him dwelling among us. John 5, 14 through 18. Afterward, Jesus found this guy in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. So let's stop for a second on that and answer the what is, how does sin correlate with sickness? Sometimes it does. Sometimes it doesn't. We see another time in Scripture that a guy's blind and the disciples ask him, Jesus, was it this man's sin or was it his parents' sin that caused him to be blind? And Jesus said, it was neither. This was just for a moment for the glory of God. It had nothing to do with his parents' sin or his own. Yet for this man, obviously... What we see here is somehow sin had resulted in this 38-year sickness. And that can happen. You can, in your sin, take yourself to sickness. And so, when we see the rules in Scripture of how God tells us to live, sometimes we go, Pastor, you talk about grace, but I see the Bible telling me to do this, to do this, to do this, and to do this. That doesn't really seem like grace. That seems like rules. Really what it is, is God designed the world, and so he happens to know how it works. And so in that, he gives us guidelines in which to live in this world in such a way that he has given it, and he has designed it, that we may live in the world in the way in which he has designed it for our own good, for his glory, and for our joy. Sin doesn't always correlate with sickness, but it certainly can and and apparently does in this man's life. 
So the man went away and told Jesus, told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. So, they're all, so now they're persecuting Jesus because he's doing things on the Sabbath, but then it takes a turn. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. Let me explain why he says that. Now, the Jews certainly believed that you were not to work on the Sabbath because that is an Old Testament law, but they also believed that God worked on the Sabbath to a degree because the world keeps spinning, we keep breathing, things keep happening, and so there was an understanding amongst Jewish leaders that at a limited capacity, at only what he had to do in their mind, only what he had to do, God was the only one who worked on the Sabbath and should. And so when Jesus says, my father is working, and so am I, he's making a very big statement there. He is declaring himself the son of God equal with God. And we see that. He says, my father is working until now, and I am working. 18. This, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So what does this have to do with Christmas? Because Jesus is Emmanuel. Jesus is God in flesh. Jesus is God walked among us on this earth. Jesus is God's effort to reconcile us back to him. And if Jesus is the son of God and not just a prophet or a good teacher or a miracle worker, the implications and ramifications of that are massive, aren't they? If he is the son of God, we have to take far more seriously every single thing that he says. John 1, 9 through 14. This will be our last passage. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, the Jewish people, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh. We can't do it on our own, nor the will of man. We can't do it on our own, but of God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's Christmas. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is not meant to be an addition to your philosophy on life. Jesus is not meant to be an addition to how you become a nice person. Jesus is either the Son of God, as he claims to be, or he's a liar. And we should ignore everything he says. The implications are massive on your life. A 
of who Jesus is to you. And I can assure you, the more you get to know him, the less he's going to fit in your life. That's the fascinating thing about him. We could dive deep, 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 deep into getting to know Jesus, and you will never reach the depths. Ever. That's the beauty of it. And a God that big loves you. God that big loves me. Pastor, you don't know what I've done. You don't know my screw-ups. You don't know mine. Jesus does. He knows them all. He knows your screw-ups. He knows your thoughts about screw-ups. He knows it all. And to those whom believed, he gave the right to become children of God. We get to go from being enemies of God to his children and get inheritance. And that is what Christ is about. That is what Christmas is about.